All right. Well, good morning, church family. Are you well? All right. Glad to hear it. I hope after all that praise and worship to the one who is worthy, you ought to be well, and, and I hope that you are. Uh, hey, like I said earlier, my name is Pastor Brian. It's my joy to bring you God's Word today. Romans chapter 1 is where we'll be. So if you brought a Bible with you, I hope that you did, grab it and turn to Romans 1. Passage should be on the screen, so if you do not have a Bible, it will be okay. Uh, today, I get what I'm going to call, what one pastor has called, the burdensome joy of preaching God's word to you. The burdensome joy. Uh, I say uh, joy because it's always a joy to bring God's word to you. I love preaching to Liberty Baptist Church. You guys receive the word so well, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, I call it burdensome. Probably doesn't need explanation, but I'm going to explain it anyway because we are talking about something real heavy today. We're talking about an issue that currently has, if you will, the loudspeaker in our culture. We're talking about sexual attraction. And it's heavy. I mean, there are people in this room who struggle with what we'll call um, deviant sexual attraction, right? There are people in this room right now who struggle with homosexual attraction. There are people who struggle with um, inappropriate heterosexual attraction. In fact, most of us in the room have some sort of struggle when it comes to sexual attraction. Many of you in the room, if not all of you in the room, know somebody who is currently in a relationship that, as a church, we would say it would be off limits for a Christ follower. And so your heart ought to be heavy this morning, just like mine is heavy. And for that reason, we'll call it a burdensome joy. But we can also say this, that we're excited to bring God's word to you. Here's why. Because we believe that God's word speaks to these issues. You know, last week we talked about mental health and um, anxiety, depression, all those things. We believe that God's word speaks to those things. We believe that his word speaks to anger and violence. We believe that his word speaks about lust and pornography. That's why we're going to talk about that in a number of weeks. We believe that it speaks about gender identity. We believe that God's word has the answers to the problems that our day and age face. So we can be excited to look and listen and hear what God would say to his church. Now, I'm not an expert on today's subject. I'm not. You're probably not either. What I am is a student of God's word. I'm studying it. I'm reading it. I'm trying to learn more how I can pattern my life to line up with the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you for the grace to not hear from an expert today, but to hear from a student of God's word and that you would be the same. It's probably no surprise to you guys. You don't need me to explain it to you why we would talk about sexual attraction in today's society. But let me just give you some stats that I think are helpful to maybe paint the picture of the scenario that we are in. A study was done by Pew Research, first of all, uh, that found that between the years of 2002 and 2019, there was a 19 point increase here in the uh, percentage point increase here in the United States of those who would affirm homosexual relationships. And we're going to use that as kind of the example while we look at, you know, deviant sexual attraction in general. But um, from 52% in 2002 that affirmed and said, yeah, homosexual marriages should be okay, homosexual unions should be okay, 52% in 2002. In 2019, they asked again, the number had gone up to 71% affirming. Another stat for you. Those in our country identifying as somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, right? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or whatever else. 
those identifying in the United States of America rose in just the last decade from 3.5% to 7.1%. Now, a 3.6% increase may not seem like that big of a deal to you, but remember, if the United States population is around 330 million people, then you're talking about an increase of 12 million people or so. Moreover, if you zoom in and you just look at not the youngest among us, but Generation Z that we always talk about, right? Those born um, between, I think it's like 1998 and 2014, the stat goes way up. The, their generation clocks in at somewhere around 20 to 21% identifying as somewhere on that, that spectrum, LGBTQ. So yeah, this issue's around you. And we're gonna talk today about how we as the church have to deal with it have to talk about it, have to do so with grace and truth. I know that there are many today in this room, probably, who have all sorts of errant sexual attractions. You're struggling. Or there may be those of you in the room that are sympathetic to what people are going through, sympathetic to the fact that maybe it's not always easy to be somebody who struggles with errant sexual attraction and be someone in church. And you're sympathetic to that. You, you want to reach them. And so you want the church to kind of shift. I mean, if you're, if you're just being honest with yourself, you do. You want the church to move ground a little bit and tolerate it, accept it, be okay with it. I want you to know that this is a heavy moment. Friends, I, I'm not going to lie to you today. But I do want you to hang with me. Because I want to try as best as I know how to speak to you as the Lord Jesus would speak to you. That's why we're going to lean on his word. But John, the gospel writer, tells us in the first chapter that the law came from Moses, but Jesus, when he came, he came with, he was full of grace and truth. And that's what I hope for us to do today in our conversation. And so if you have Romans 1 open in your Bible, if you're able to, I'm going to invite you to stand just as a way of showing honor and you know, respect to God's word as we read this passage together. Romans 1, longer passage, we'll read from verse 18 through verse 32. So you read with me, uh, and yeah, you follow along. That's what I'm trying to say as I read out loud. Verse 18 says this, For God's wrath is revealed from, all, uh, from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, here's what happened. Their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Listen to this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that depicted or represented mortal man. They took the glory of God who can't die and replaced it with men who can die, or worse, birds, or four-footed animals and reptiles. That's what they chose to worship. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity 
so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over again to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over again a third time to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they applaud others who practice them as well. Father, we just jumped right on into the deep end of your word. And so give us the grace to swim. Help us, Lord, to know what you're saying. And may the weight of conviction be done by your Holy Spirit, Lord. May you open our eyes, open our hearts to hear what your spirit is saying to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. And again, all God's people said, amen. amen. Y'all have a seat. Well, it's a heavy passage, isn't it? I mean, what a way to start off a, a Sunday morning service. Um, I think probably before we dive in too deep, it's helpful to begin with what we're talking about. And so some, some definitions for you this morning. The first one that I'm taking is from the American Psychological Association. It's a definition of sexual orientation. And I, I think that like if you go to the website, the definition that they provide is at least half helpful. So we'll start with that. Uh, they say this, sexual orientation is an often enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions of men to women or women to men. They call that heterosexual of women to women or men to men, we call that homosexual, or by men or women to both sexes, and we would call that bisexual. And beyond that, what I want to do is, we're not talking about sexual orientation today, we're talking about sexual attraction, so I want to define kind of what we mean when we say that phrase. Attraction, in a general sense, is just a God-given gift in behavior that draws us to things, right? You can be attracted to different types of food, different places in the world, different cities that you live in, different hobbies, different things to do. Attraction is very, very general. In particular, when we talk about sexual attraction, it's what draws us to um, others in you know, ultimately looking for the desire, the fulfillment of sexual union or sexual expression. Now, sexual attraction becomes what we would say errant uh, or wrong when it goes against what God's word would say is an appropriate form thereof. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, that, that's, as, that's as simple as we can get on this issue for one another, brothers and sisters. If there is a God, and there is, and if he has spoken to us through his word, through the Bible, and he has, then at its core, sexual attraction is inappropriate, wrong, or errant when it disobeys God's word, when it disobeys God's pattern. And so today I have four goals that 
I want to try and accomplish with you in our short time together. And while I'm at this, maybe I should say, like, goal number zero is for you to realize real quick, I will not say everything that needs to be said. It's not going to happen. So with that in mind, having grace for one another, number one, I want to talk first about what God says is appropriate sexual attraction. What is God's design ultimately for sex? What does it look like? What does it look like for us to participate in sexual attraction, sexual expression, and sexual union in God's way according to his design? I want to talk about that. Number two, I want to ask the question and spend a little bit of time with the issue of why wrongful sexual attractions come about. Why is it that we deal with things like homosexual attraction? Or bisexual attraction? Why is it that we deal with those things? Goal number three. And I really mean this. You may have to trust me. I want to offer hope to those of you who struggle with what God's word says. I do. As much as I can, I want you to know that the hope for you is exactly the same as the hope for me. We are not different in our sinful expression. So I want to offer hope to you. And number four, I want to encourage all of us, I want to encourage all of us to engage this issue in a Jesus-shaped way. Remember what I said? Full of grace and truth. We're not doing a balancing act. We don't want to lean more toward the truth and lean away from grace. We don't want to lean more toward grace and away from the truth. Jesus was full of both of them, and I believe that we can be too, by his spirit. So that's how we have to do it. Because the reality is, friends, I I really think that the church in the last, you know, 50, 60 years, probably longer than that, I've not been alive that long, and so, you know, the church has mishandled this uh, this issue, And and I think we've done it in a number of ways. The first way that we've mishandled this issue is through what I'll call compassionless engagement. Everybody in the world knew what we believed, but not everybody in the world knew that we would accept them and love them if they struggled in our midst. And that's a problem. We cannot be church people who are trying to tell bad people how to become good people. That's not our mission, and it would be unacceptable in the sight of God. Friends, we are sinners in this room. We're all the bad people. And what we're trying to do is tell all people about the only good person who's ever lived by whom they can have life in his name. So we can't be church people telling bad people how to become good people. Friends, we have to engage with compassion. We've got to share the truth in love. Second way I think that we've mishandled this is, is, is fear. Y'all, as a church, we've been afraid. I know some of you in this room right now, you are afraid. You're afraid of the movement that's happening in our culture. And I just want to tell you something. Brothers and sisters, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of armies is not sitting on his throne sweating the current LGBTQ movement in America. He's not. He's a lot bigger than that. And he's been on the throne for a lot longer than this cultural movement has been going on. So friends, we don't need to be afraid. We can rest in the fact that our God is bigger. Jesus said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus also said, take heart, I have overcome the world. 
So we can't be afraid. We can't walk in fear as the church. We've got to walk in confidence. And we got to say it this way. You've heard us say this at Liberty before. I'll say it again to you. The greatest problem that our world has today is not, again, that LGBTQ plus movement. It's not. The greatest problem that our world has today is lostness. That people don't know Jesus Christ and we as the church need to be on mission spending our lives so that they can know him. So I want you to remember that. Our greatest issue is not whatever cultural movement comes about. Our greatest issue that surrounds us is lostness. King Jesus is not followed and if he were, we would see victory. But here's the third way that I think the church has failed, and, and this one more recently in, in this um, particular co- cultural moment that we are in. We get quiet. In a lot of cases, we end up changing our belief to accommodate, to affirm. You saw it on the statistic earlier, 72%, 71%, I'm sorry. And friends, as the church, we can't do that either. The Bible calls the church the pillar and the mainstay of the truth. We are what supports and holds the truth up in society. Friends, we can't be caught letting that crumble. Let me say it this way. You and I cannot be caught being deceivers to the cultural moment that we're in. You know what a deceiver does, right? Hides the truth. We cannot be silent when the culture around us needs us to speak. We've got to be faithful to say what God says. And so knowing that the church, I think, mishandled it in those three ways, the question then to us is, how do we handle it? I mean, after all, let's, let's start here, right? What does God say about sexual attraction? And, and, and so, you know, here's where I'll, I'll try and sum this up as best as I can. Listen, God's goal is not to move us in culture, in church, in your life. God's goal is not to move us from one mode of sexual attraction or expression to another. Say to move us from like homosexual to heterosexual. That's not his goal. God's goal is to move us from all sorts of unholy sexuality to holy sexuality. That's what God wants us to do when it comes to this issue. And let me walk this out. I'm going to give you an easy truth, a harder truth, and then a hard truth. Okay, you ready? Here's the easy truth for you. When it comes to sex and sexual union, God wants what's best for you. He does. God wants what's best for you in your life when it comes to this issue. Here's the harder truth. If God designed what's best for you, then God gets to define what's best for you. Right? So he wants what's best for you, but if he designed it, then he gets to define it. And then here's the hard truth. God has defined it. He has spoken. He has said this is the way that it ought to be, and these are the ways that it ought not to be. So with those three truths in mind, if you have sermon notes and you're following along along in that way today, here's main point number one for you, God's design. One man, one woman, for one lifetime. God's design for sexual expression is one, and we should probably add the word biological man, 
One by, I know every, one pastor said it this way, every few years you got to come back and add words to the definition, right? But one biological man with one biological woman for one biological, I guess, lifetime. (laughs) Death is the only thing that should separate. And so we read from Romans 1, but let me do this with you real quick. We're going to back all the way up to the beginning. That's where God laid out his design. Uh, If you read the first three chapters of Genesis, you're going to have a really good understanding of what is going on in this world at any given time. Particularly in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, is where we find the story of God, you know, the the account kind of zooms in on God's creation of the man. But even before that, in Genesis, as God rolls out creation in chapter 1, six different times God makes something and then says, that's good. That's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. Six times he does it. And then when he's finished with creation, he looks at everything that he's made and he says that it was very good indeed. I mean, God did a really good job when he created. So all that goodness in mind, we come to chapter two and then all of a sudden there's this moment that really ought to shock and surprise us. Is that me? Yeah, it probably is. All right, cool. Uh, There's this moment that really ought to shock and surprise us and it's this. I might need to switch mics. Here we go. All right, how exciting. Wow. There's this moment in Genesis 2 that ought to shock and surprise us. Here's what happens. God creates the man, breathes the breath of life into his lungs. The man gets up, and he's a walking, talking human being, and God looks at the situation, and he says, not good. For the first time over his creation, God speaks those words, not good good. Why is it not good? Because he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So then here's what he says. He says, and I want you to, you got to catch this for me. I will make for him a helper corresponding to him, a helper corresponding to him. The words there in Hebrew, which is the language that the Old Testament was written in for the most part, is ezer konegdo. Okay, say ezer konegdo. You guys are great. Hebrew 101, let's go. Uh, Ezer Konegdo. Ezer uh, is the word that we translate helper, right? Now, fellas, before you go all, you know, yeah, that's right, woman, make me a sandwich or whatever. Uh, I want you to know this word is used three different ways in the Old Testament. Primarily, most of the time, it's used of the Lord, right? He is the helper of his people. He helps them in battle. He helps them in their lives. He helps them in provision. And so the Lord is the helper of his people. Second, this word was used a handful of times of allies that the Israelites would have in wartime, right? Uh, and then third, it is used here uh, of the woman who, is the hel- who will become the helper to the man. So again, before you go, I'll make me a sandwich. Remember, this is what God had in mind for your helper, that she would be a warrior who stands beside you on the day of battle and is ready to tackle life's issues with you. Fellas, free point for you here. When's the last time you told your wife that you were thankful for her? And if it was too long ago, or you can't remember, make it today. Be thankful for the one that God gave to you. But again, like I said, we got to dive back in. So Ezer is a helper. Konegdo uh, is an interesting word, but here's, here's what it means. It means like uh, corresponding to is actually probably the best translation that we can give to it. If you were lining people up in two lines and you had one person stand on this side and then you had the other person stand facing them, right? You might say something like, you stand opposite of him, right? Face to face, 
And so what the scripture is getting at with this word that comes out, connecto, is that the, the, the person that God's going to create here to be the companion of the man is going to be someone, a, a, a strong warrior ally who's like the man, but different from him. She's, she shares some certain characteristics, but she's also unique from the man. This is the way that God designed it. And I, you know, she's not been called yet a woman. Um, Adam's going to give her that name in just a moment. But don't miss this, friends. When God goes looking for the perfect uh, fix, the perfect solution to the man's plight of being alone in the creation, he builds him an Ezer Konegdo. So this is exactly what happens. Adam, uh, you know, he, he's standing there and God and he are probably having this discussion and uh, God forms all the animals out of the ground. He parades those animals before Adam he, and, and he tells Adam to name all of them. So Adam's going through, he's naming all the animals as they come before them. But the Bible says that for Adam, there could not be found an Ezer Konegdo. There was no helper that was fitting for him or suitable for him or corresponding to him. So the point is this, when God sets out to shape the perfect solution for the man's aloneness, he creates the woman. Now, if we were only biological accidents, my friends, it'd be perfectly logical to assume that asexual reproduction could be how we make the race go forward. You don't need two genders in evolutionary processes. In fact, they tell us it's how it all started. One cell reproduced itself. So it's logical to assume that two genders was totally unnecessary unless it was designed that way, and it was. And so I want you to remember that that's exactly what God's make, uh, God makes. Adam goes under like divine anesthesia. He goes to sleep. God pulls some of his side out of him. He forms this, this, this woman. Uh, and then what we see is like a wedding ceremony. It's actually really cool. I mean, you have the father God bringing his daughter Eve to Adam. Adam sings a song over Eve. I don't, fellas, I don't know if you did that at your wedding. My wife and I sang together to the Lord, but I didn't feel comfortable singing over her. But that's what Adam did. Uh, and then from there, God uh, declares over them, the two shall become one flesh. It's right there in the Bible. And then here's the first command that God gives to Adam and Eve after they're created. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with people. I don't have to explain to you what that means or how that happens. But it's clear from Genesis chapter 2 that this is how God designed things to be. Now, if you're not convinced by that, then friend, let me tell you this. The consistent witness of the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures is that the only appropriate expression of sexuality is between one married man and one married woman for one lifetime. Homosexuality is condemned in Leviticus 18.22, in 2013, you'll hear people say it's just Old Testament that condemned it. That's not true. 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7 talks about it and condemns it. 1 Timothy 1.10 condemns it. Jude 1.7 also condemns it. And that's not the only kind of errant sexual expression. Adultery is also condemned in the Bible. In fact, it made the top 10 list of God's words to the, his people to not do. It's described as destructive in Proverbs 6, 32. It received the death penalty in ancient Israel. Leviticus 6, 32 says that. All sexual immorality, 
the word in Greek for the New Testament is porneia, and yes, that's where we get our word porn or pornography. All sexual immorality is condemned. Read 1 Corinthians 6 as that which will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of heaven. So yes, friends, this is God's design, and it's also the clear witness of the Bible. So how did we get here? How did we get to the point where errant sexual expression is all around us? Well, that's where Romans 1 demonstrates it to us and shows us. And this is the second main point, if you've got notes. Sin's disorder. God's truth exchanged for lies. In Romans, the way that Paul words it is truth suppression, right? We suppress the truth by unrighteousness. And listen, friends, we all do this. This is not limited to those people who have deviant sexual attraction around you. You and I do this every time we commit any sin, but yes, in particular, sexual sins. Because here's the reality. Imagine yourself standing in the presence of the creator God. Would you go forward with whatever sexual sin you were about to commit in his presence? And so the thing is, what we have to do is we have to convince ourselves that God's not watching or he doesn't really care, or it's not really going to bother him, or he'll forgive us anyway because Jesus died for us. Do you see what you're doing? You're suppressing the truth. We all do it. If you're going to get away with sin in God's presence, and we know that God sees everything, you have to be an expert at self-justification, and every one of us in the room is. We convince ourselves that it's going to be okay. And so in Romans 1, here's the point to be made. The fundamental issue is not homosexuality. I know it sounds like it is because our ears are attuned for that and we latch onto it when we're reading through that passage. But in Romans 1, the fundamental issue is idolatry. It's that rather than worshiping the creator God, we worship creation instead. And for this reason, Paul says, we're without excuse. We know who God is. We've seen it in creation. We know his divine power and his eternal nature, but we ignore it. We decide that we want to be God instead of letting God be God. And so we move forward into idolatry. And because of this idolatry, God delivers us over to the sexual errors that are listed or described in verses 26 through 28 when Paul says, for this reason, God delivered them over to these disgraceful passions. He talks about women exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. And then he says the men in the same way, so they're both doing the same thing, left natural relations with women and they were inflamed with lust for one another. They committed shameless acts with other men and received in their persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now I gotta make two notes here. Sometimes you'll hear people say that the homosexuality they had back in Paul's day was different from how it is in our day. My friend, that's not true. And it's a horribly unhistorical take. If you go back and you read and you research, you will find that they had every variety of sexual sin, including homosexual sin, just like we do today. They had committed same-sex they had uncommitted same-sex. They had pedophilic same-sex. They had slave same-sex. All of that was wrapped up and experienced in Paul's day. So don't take that take. It's not real. And it's a lie to try and squeeze out God's word. The second note is this. If you struggle in the room with same-sex attraction, 
I want you to trust me that Paul is not calling you gross or unnatural. He's not. And I need you to know that. Because if you believe that, then you've taken Romans 1 out of context. Here's the reality. We all fall short of the glory of God. And again, we like to think that our sin is small and other sin is big, but that is not the case. In fact, in chapters 2 and 3, Paul's going to shut up the rest of the world in the same sin that separates them from God that he's talking about here in chapter 1. So no, my friend, your sin is not more gross than mine is. And as I'm thinking about our song that we sang this morning, look to the lamb and you're seeing his image upon the cross, brutal, battered, bloody. And you think that's a hard image to look like, my friend, that's, that's your sin. That's my sin. That's what we look like in the sight of a holy God. So know that he's not singling you out. He's singling idolaters out and we all are that. As Paul talks about being delivered over, here's the way that one pastor has said it. He says, those who abandon God find themselves ultimately abandoned by God at last. That's what it means when God gives them over. And brothers and sisters, this is hell on earth. God looks at us. He says, you want to be God? You want to decide what's right and wrong? Have at it. And deal with the consequences that come with it. We're given over three times in this passage, given over to our heart desires in verse 24, to disgraceful pa uh, uh, passions in verse 26, and to corrupt minds in verse 28. And we find that we make terrible gods. The world that we make when we sit on the throne is not progressive, it's regressive. It goes backwards and it leaves a trail of devastation. But... Friend, in this world of devastation, there is hope. It may not sound like it when I rattle off main point three to you, but hang with me. Main point three is this, that God's decree is that those who practice such things deserve death. I want to remind you of the list that we looked at in verses 29 through 31. And once you've gotten point three written down in your notes, just close your eyes with me real quick and listen to this list. Filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Friend, look at me. Are you on that list? I know I am. I mean, I may not necessarily be an inventor of evil, but am I proud? You better believe it. I mean, I may, I may not be a, a God-hater, but was I disobedient to my parents? Yeah. We are all on this list. The key word is the one that comes in verse 32. Those who practice such things. It was Martin Luther who 
nailed 95 statements of belief. They were called like a thesis, right? Statements of belief. He nailed them to a university castle door in Germany in 1517 and kicked off the Protestant Reformation. The first one of his uh, thesis said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. My friend, you cannot practice repentance and practice those, t- those things on that list at the same time. So yes, those who practice those things deserve to die, and we all do. But those who practice repentance in following after Jesus find new life. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing, and he rolls out a very similar list. And at the end of it, he says these words, Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Around here at Liberty, we say it this way. As a believer, you cannot sin successfully. As a believer, the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to eat away with conviction. I know he's done it in my life. And he will lead you to practice repentance, not practice these things. And so as we wrap it up, I want to encourage you to look ahead in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul, having shut up the Gentile world in disobedience, is now shutting up the Jewish world in disobedience before God. And here's what he says to them. He says, do you despise the riches of God's kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's his kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. My friend, when it comes to this issue, you've got two choices. You can go with what God's word says, and you can overcome what the world around you says. Or you can let the world drown out the word in your life. But you can't do both. I want you to imagine what if everybody in the world lived according to God's instruction? I mean, does that paint the kind of world that, that you and I would want to live in? Think about this. There would be no more orphans. Every child would have a loving mother and father in their household to raise them. There'd be no sex outside of marriage, so no adultery, no cheating, no trust issues. There'd be no pornography. And even if there was, nobody would want to look at it. You want to live in that world? I mean, I know that I do. And you may look at me and say, Brian, that's fantasy land. No, sir, that's the kingdom of God. I want to live in and build that kingdom. And I want you to do it too. There are probably three categories of people who I would say need to respond in some way today. And I'll walk those out as best as I can for you as we move into our time of response. There are, first of all, those of you who have the right belief, but you've been guilty of that engagement without compassion. You know, you don't, you don't know of any friends around you who struggle with this issue. Well, let me tell you something, friend. The reason for that may be because they don't feel like they can talk to you about this issue. They may be struggling, but they know that as soon as they talk to you, they're just going to get judged and told what they need to be better at. You can't do that, my friend. Today, I ask you to repent of compassionless engagement, and I urge you, to engage them with the way of Jesus. You know the difference between 
Moses coming down the mountain and giving the law the Israelites, uh, to the Israelites and the way that we're called to be as Christians. When Jesus came down more than a mountain, right, from heaven to earth in the incarnation, he built face-to-face relationships with people and led them out of their sin. So who are you more like, Moses or Jesus? Church, let's be like Jesus as we engage those who struggle in this way. Second category, maybe you're good with God's design. Maybe you think that different ways of sexual expression are okay, but either way, you're staying quiet. You don't want to rock the boat. You want that peace and quiet. Well, friend, Jesus said the truth will set you free. You believe that. Do you believe it for that person who's struggling in this way? Do you believe that God's truth will set them free? And if you do, then repent for being quiet and get to that point with them where you can share God's truth and pray that it sets them free. And then third, there are those of you in the room today who are struggling with errant sexual attraction. Whether it is emotional fantasy or lust or thinking about someone who's not your husband, not your wife, or maybe it is same-sex attraction, or maybe it's bisexual attraction. Whatever it is, the call to you, my friend, is to repent and come to Jesus. You will find him extremely gracious with those who struggle sexually. I know because we all struggle in that way. And in my own life, I have found Jesus to be extremely compassionate. So friend, call to all of us is to take up your cross. Carry the cross that has been given to you. That's the call of discipleship. Listen, you may not like your particular cross. I don't like mine on most days. But you're still called to carry it. And you don't carry it because you like it. You carry it because Jesus is worthy of you carrying it. So take up your cross and follow after Jesus. And remember, we don't follow him because he makes life better. We follow Jesus because he is better than life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. And we praise you for that promise about your word, that your word is truth. And that the truth will set us free. And so today, Lord, we've offered a lot of words to a heavy topic. We've not said everything that needs to be said. And so my prayer is that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll convict all of us in the room of what we need to hear today and what we need to do about it. Lord, would you move in our lives and heal us from sin's disorder? Would you lead us to pursue your design? And would you lead us to remind others of your decree? We should be people who practice repentance, not practice these lists of things that you've commanded us not to do. As we worship you in song, Lord, may you be glorified and may we believe in the core of our being that you can change everything. May we act on faith this morning.